Hello, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I've got special guest Zach Bitter on the line today. How you doing, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. This this is a, this is gonna be a good podcast because this is so far outside of my normal area of expertise that I'm a, I'm excited to learn something here today. Yeah, it's a, it's always fun to get on some different different podcasts and stuff. And you know, I've, I've I've been on some podcasts in the past that were kind of opposite end of the spectrum of what I do. And I think some of that's just from the nutritional side of things. Uh, uh, there's always a lot to be learned from other athletes and folks doing things nutritionally. It's pretty cool that we're both. I mean, we're we're kind of on the same genre nutritionally speaking, but from different sports, so you can kind of see how. You know, like the low carb keto diet as a whole is kind of, you know, transcending the the genre of the the you know sport, which is, I think, really paving the way for new athletes coming up. Yeah, for sure. I think especially in the last five, maybe even ten years, it's started to kind of gain quite a bit of momentum. And you know, when I first kind of started looking into it, it was still more or less kind of scoffed at. But now, uh, I think people are taking a second look, and a lot more people are are giving it a try and, and starting to kind of build up a lot of results within a variety of different different athletes and folks just uh, from health all the way to fitness. I agree, I agree. Well, let's let's backtrack a little bit and kind of dive in, give a little bio here. So for anybody that doesn't know, your your sport is uh, ultra-endurance running, correct? Yeah, yeah. I like to do races that tend to be anywhere from 50 kilometers up to 100 miles and beyond, I guess. It's... Uh, it's a little excessive, but uh, it's uh, kind of a niche that I found a lot of pleasure doing. That's 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 the beauty of it, man. You find your sport, you can just kind of run with it. No pun intended, right? <laughs> so so yeah, let's talk about um, before we even get into like keto and low carb, man. Just talking about the sport in general. What what got you into that in the first place? Like, have you always run distance, or was that kind of like a transition later in life? Yeah, you know, I I was first kind of exposed to, uh, I guess, any type of distance running back in middle school. Uh, You know, they used to do this thing called the Presidential Physical Fitness Challenge. I'm I'm not sure if they still do that stuff or not, but it was kind of a cool setup where you kind of test yourself within a variety of different like athletic markers. And the, the final thing for it was a mile run. And and I remember doing that and finishing and a lot of my classmates kind of had the attitude of that, that sucked. I never want to do it again. And for some reason I was like, I actually kind of like that. I think, uh, I think I might want to try doing it again. So that kind of resonated with me that like, you know, some of my peers hated it and I loved it. So, uh, from there on, I kind of skewed the way that way towards distance running when we would do like track and field day and things like that. And, um, then when high school rolled around, I, you know, did some cross country track and field and I had a, a pretty influential coach in high school who had a pretty strong knowledge of kind of training methodology and things like that. So he kind of started to steer me towards more specific type of training. Uh, and then when I got to college, uh, you know, that was at a level where uh, the coaching and stuff was was very dialed in. So that's where I probably learned the most about like, you know, this is what this workout was supposed to do. This is the um, idea behind this type of stuff. And it was in college where I started to kind of identify that my favorite workout of the week was our long run that we would do on Sunday. So after college, I gravitated towards just kind of doing more or less all long runs for a while. 
and uh, that kind of led me into the the ultra marathon running community, um, since that tends to be kind of the keystone workout for for prep for those type of distances. Because I mean, wh- at what point does it become an ultra ultra marathon? What, what's the mile marker? Yeah, I mean, technically anything over a marathon, I guess, would be considered an ultra. Um, most people consider like the 50 kilometer distance kind of that stepping stone into ultra marathon where it gets a little, little goofy is like the terrain kind of varies from anything from a track, like a 400 meter track all the way up to these like insanely technical steep mountains and stuff like that. So like a one mile or one kilometer isn't always created equal in those scenarios. So Mm -hmm. you can have some, some races that are like less than marathon distance or right around marathon distance even. And it just like, you know, takes guys and gals twice as long as it would for them to do a, a flat marathon. So I think when you start getting into those extreme environments, it gets a little more gray area as to what actually an ultra marathon is versus, um, you know, areas where you can kind of measure things a little more on like a flat pavement or track or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the sport is, is a niche sport, so it's hard to really kind of compartmentalize too much, but I mean, there's everything from 50 kilometers uh, through mountains all the way up to six-day events on like one-mile loops where you just see how far you can get in six days and uh, and then everything in between. So it's a interesting sport. Because track and field, like high school track and field, I'm trying to think back on it now. I, I would always run like the mile. I think they have like a two-mile, but it was all pretty much capped at like two miles if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. Most high school programs kind of have like a 3,200 meter, which is about two miles and uh, that's about as far you can go. And then uh, cross country season, you can get up to like a 5k usually at, for most states. But yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's technically distance running, uh, but it's more short end distance running, I guess. when you're looking at the grand scheme of, you know, how far some of these races end up getting. Yeah. I thought I was doing good when I would run like five miles a day. And then, you know, I found <laughs> out about ultras and it's like hundred miles. I mean, I went to your website prior to giving you a call here and the last event was like a hundred miles which just blows my mind, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to me because since I have had experience competing at a variety of distances, you know, essentially from like 800 meters all the way up to 200 kilometers, uh, you know, the, those shorter ones like the 5Ks, the 3200s, the miles, they're shorter, but they're not necessarily easier. It's like a, <laughs> it's a different type of pain when you kind of push your body to your limit at even those short distance. It's uh it's really always been an intriguing thing for me just to kind of see those variances as I've kind of experienced the different different types of events and distances, trains, and all that stuff. What is your like preferred um, distance? Like if you could pick and choose any distance, what would you gravitate towards? Uh, you know, I've kind of, I guess, more or less grown to like the 100-mile distance probably the best. Uh that one intrigues me the most because it seems like it's kind of that that split between uh, where where the variables start to skew enough towards things like management and nutrition and like not necessarily trying to avoid all mistakes, but how you respond to mistakes and then kind of persevere uh, kind of tells the story of how well you're going to do. Uh, you know, the way I always describe it is there's a lot of times where if I'm training for something under a hundred miles, I can usually get a pretty good idea of like, based on my training and fitness where I'm going to finish. But with a hundred miles, you can be really fit and confident, but the variance in where you might finish can be, can be quite, quite drastic depending on how the day goes. Um, 
So I really like that kind of mental side of it that gets rolled in where you're juggling a bunch of these different variables. It's a, almost a guarantee that something's going to go wrong eventually. Uh, and it's how you respond to it as to how your day ends up as opposed to just let, trying to make a mistake-free effort. Uh, and, you know, that adds a little bit of intrigue. And I think that's where we kind of also start to see the predictability kind of wane a little bit as to how someone's going to be good or you know, average or great at a distance. Um, I think with some of the other distances, you can look at like previous times, like you look at someone's five kilometer PR, their marathon PR and things like that and get a pretty good grasp of where they'd probably fall in like a 50 kilometer or a 50 mile race. But once you get to a hundred miles, it's, uh, it's a little less about how big of a kind of an, an engine you have, so to speak, uh, and more about kind of how you're able to manage things and take care of yourself throughout the course of a long day out there. It's got to be pretty fulfilling, man, to, to know that you're doing something that, you know, almost everybody else in the population steers away from. Like that right there is motivating in itself, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I've been, I did my first ultra marathon in 2010, and uh, the community is so unique. And when you kind of ingratiate yourself in it, the thing you have to kind of remember, in my opinion, is that, like, you can normalize it within that community because you're with this group of people who a lot of them have done multiple, you know, there's guys and gals who've done like upwards to 200 of these. So uh, you start to think like it's just more or less the normal thing to do. But then when you step outside of that small community and realize like, no, we're, we're actually kind of crazy and odd people. <laughs> and most people think we're, we're a little nuts and, and you know, they're probably right. So uh, it is, it's interesting to kind of like talk about the sports, uh, within those two contexts and and then see the difference in like kind of how people compartmentalize it and rationalize it and stuff like that. Yeah, let's let's dive into to that, man, cuz I really want to kind of learn about the sport from your perspective being in the in the midst of it cuz it's easy to kind of look at, you know, an a, an athletic event or or anything in life really from an outside perspective and just be totally, you know, ignorant as to all the intricate details of it. So I, I'm I want to take advantage of this opportunity having you on the phone here and, and just kind of dive into, you know, ultra endurance running, especially from like a ketogenic perspective. Like what, like from the from the coaching aspect, for instance, you said that when you went to college, you know, the coaching really started to change and uh, like just the the tweaks that were made really brought up your performance. What what does coaching even look like for endurance running? Like what's the focus on? Yeah, you know, most endurance coaching programs are always going to kind of focus around specificity. So they're going to look at the distance and the terrain in which you're going to compete on, and they're going to structure everything kind of backwards based on that. So where it gets kind of interesting or where it gets kind of different, I guess, is depending on like the pace and the terrain you're going to race on. So if like in college when we were racing like eight kilometers, five kilometers, 10 kilometers and stuff like that, you know, as we got closer to our kind of, you know, championship season or peak races, we were doing a lot of workouts that very much kind of mimicked race pace. Uh, and a lot of times that looked like, you know, interval sessions at race pace, uh, and then like shorter intervals for like a little bit of overspeed training and things like that. Those were the kind of like sharpen the spear type of workouts. Um, where it kind of gets different is when you get into these longer distances where your race pace might actually be slower than kind of your, your easy run or your normal pace. Uh, so you kind of have to like juggle those systems a little differently where, uh, I still think there's value in doing some of those faster, shorter interval sessions. Uh, but when I'm like preparing for a hundred mile race, I would be more likely 
to skew those types of workouts earlier in the training block and address that system uh, in its in its heaviest point, like further away from the race. And then as I get closer to the race, I bring in some of those uh, focused workouts that are more closely related to the race distance. So then we're getting into things like long runs, back-to-back long runs, where I might be spending you know, eight to 10 hours of running in a two day weekend. Um, and then, you know, the, any type of speed session or overspeed session would tend to skew more towards like a long interval session or a long tempo session or progression type run where you're not necessarily running at a hundred percent for a short period of time recovering and then doing it again, but you're, you're running like, you know, at 70, 80% capacity for a much longer period of time. Is there like a specific pace that you try and kind of have in your mind to keep when you do a 100-mile race, for instance? I mean, obviously, going to kind of depend on the terrain and whatnot, but is it like a general rule of thumb you like to keep? Uh, yeah, you know, the, the thing that I find most fascinating about 100 miles is that, you know, historically, I've done more of those things on these kind of flat, fast surfaces, uh, and, you know, a lot of times even on like a 400-meter track. So for an event like that, I think you can get way more specific in terms of picking like a, a pace that you think you can hit and then just really dialing it in because you have like immediate feedback. Your train's not going to change. You can oftentimes kind of predict more or less what the weather's going to be like from year to year. Uh, and those events tend to kind of focus on trying to find more ideal conditions because they're looking for fast times. Uh, but then when you get to a race like the one I'm training for right now, the Western States 100, where you know, we, we start out in Squaw Valley in California and we immediately go up about a three mile ascent um, in the high country there. To, and it, it gets up to about, I think, 9,200 feet. And you kind of run through the high country and then you go through this uh, big canyon section of about 30 miles uh, where in the canyons they can get up to like 110 degrees some years. And, you know, you finish then kind of coming down towards Auburn, California on some more runnable trail. And there's just so many like variances there that can happen if the weather is way different, if it's really hot one year or if it's like unseasonably cool one year where it gets really hard to kind of say like, I'm going to hit this this exact split. Um, To kind of give an example, the guy who won that race last year ran it in 16 hours and I think like 23 minutes. Um, And he had been second earlier in his career there with a time that was in like the low 15 hour range. So you know, he was over an hour slower the year he won it, but that was very much due to the kind of terrain difficulty. They had a bunch of snow that year, so the high country was a lot more difficult to run through. It still got hot in the canyon, so that added a little bit of a uh, a challenge to it as well. So a lot of it comes when you're getting in those extreme, more extreme environments is being able to adjust on the fly and recognizing like, okay, I'm putting forth the proper effort and this terrain is either more difficult, more easy, uh, or maybe what you expected and kind of being able to adjust with that as, as opposed to kind of just sticking to a plan that maybe isn't appropriate for that given day. Do you try and, um, like based off of where the run's going to be, do you try and get some training in like in a similar elevation area or similar climate region or something, you know, kind of in advance? Yeah, that's, that's the ideal way to go about it. And, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll pick races as a races to kind of focus on that, that I have the option to kind of train on the specific stuff for the way I kind of describe it is I'll usually do somewhere between six to eight ultra marathons in a year. But of those six to eight, I probably only going to do two or maybe three that I really try to kind of 
uh, peak for in, in the sense that I'm going to be willing to push my body 100% and leave everything out there. Uh, if not, every, like just, you know, really kind of go to the well, so to speak. Um, so for those races, I really like to have the specific terrain of the course itself, because if I'm going to give that much effort, then I really want to be as prepared as possible. So for, for Western States 100, that's coming up here in June, on June 23rd, uh, that's the race I kind of just described a little bit. You know, I've been doing a lot of stuff in canyons and a lot of, uh, climbing and descending, running on trails, uh, since it can get really hot during the canyon section of that race. You know, I'm fortunate that I live in Phoenix, Arizona right now. So if I get out in the middle of the day, I can get exposure to over hundred degree weather and really kind of acclimate to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, really ideally, if you're going to meet full potential, you're able to kind of mimic the race course conditions as closely as possible and really kind of dial in that, that type of a feel. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about, um, like your recovery and stuff between, between runs, what are you trying to uh, do there? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I've put a lot of focus on nutrition when it comes to recovery, nutrition and sleep, because I think those are two things that oftentimes get overlooked. People think, I think sometimes, okay, I'm going to put in all the work, but then, um, I mean, as you know, the best work can be easily sabotaged by poor recovery or poor nutrition. So, uh, you know, once I've done a big workout or a series of big workouts, I start to kind of reprioritize my goals in terms of, you know, what I'm trying to give my body or ask my body to do. Um, so like if I do like a, a, a weekend, like I had this last weekend where it's a pretty big training cycle, the next couple of days, I kind of dial back the intensity and, and do some more easy running and focus on making sure I get to bed at a good time and get a good amount of sleep. Um, I'll usually drop my carbohydrate levels really, really low during those recovery like sessions. Um, cause I've just seen in myself that, you know, when I drop the carbs really low, I tend to kind of get through a lot of that, you know, like post-workout, post-race recovery stuff a lot, a lot quicker. And I'm able to kind of get back to training a little, a little sooner. Um, so I'll follow more or less a, a much more like kind of what you would maybe see as a clinical ketogenic diet during those, those days or stretches of time, uh, where I'm bringing those carbs down to like, you know, that 30 to 50 gram per day type of uh, framework. Yeah, speaking, I mean, it's a good segue to just nutrition in general, but what's, what's been your kind of like transition into keto and how long have you been doing that in low carb in general and just kind of dive into that realm? Yeah, you know, I I did my, like I kind of said earlier, I did my first ultra marathon in, at the end of 2010 and then that following year I kind of took another step forward in that sport and did uh, kind of what I would consider a fall winter season of 350 milers. And I did those, I think it was in like a nine week time span. Um, and what I kind of noticed during that was that the, within the presence of a high mileage training, you know, you're working a full time job as a teacher at the time, and then that much racing, I started noticing kind of some goofy things going on. Uh, I was, I was about 25 at the time and, uh, I would have a lot more difficulty sleeping through the night. And historically when I was younger, I would, you know, I was really good at, you know, I'd go to bed and then I wouldn't wake up until the next morning. So that was kind of something weird that I noticed changing in kind of my, my, my lifestyle habits, I guess. Mm-hmm. And other things that kind of was peculiar to me was like, I just had these big energy swings throughout the course of the day. Um, a lot of different things like swelling in legs after big sessions and stuff like that, that 
kind of made it difficult to bounce back from workouts or big training weeks and stuff like that. So it, to me, that kind of was a little bit of an early sign or canary in the coal mine, so to speak of, uh, you know, what I was doing wasn't necessarily sustainable or, or beneficial for me long term. So I thought I would try to kind of address things nutritionally first and see if that cleared up. Um, cause I very much kind of loved what I was doing from a training and racing standpoint, didn't necessarily want to like step back from that if I didn't have to. And, you know, that's when I kind of started to explore, you know, a high fat approach as opposed to a traditional kind of high carbohydrate diet that that's oftentimes advocated for endurance athletes. And, uh, when I first switched, one thing I noticed right away was like within the first week or two, I was starting to sleep through the night again. Um, I also noticed that during like my work day and stuff, I had a much more kind of even keel energy levels, wasn't kind of that roller coaster ride throughout the day. Um, it, it took about three or four weeks before my workout started to feel decent again or my runs. Uh, but I was fairly strategic with it where I didn't drop it in during a time where I was doing like, you know, high volume plus intensity. I, I kind of placed it in a time frame in the calendar where my, my workouts were slowly building up as opposed to being at their peak. Uh, because I was, uh, I was essentially taught that, uh, the worst time to kind of switch your diet drastically is when your stress levels are at their all time highest. Cause you're introducing a new stress on top of an already stressful time. Mm-hmm. So I tried to be kind of cognizant of that. And, um, you know, the, the early signs were apparent enough to me to have me kind of stick through it and kind of go through the full process of kind of fat adapting, so to speak. And, you know, once I kind of knew that it, it just became a, a question of, okay, how do I really specify this for my lifestyle as opposed to just, you know, what the ketogenic diet was originally designed for. Um, so I've been doing it for just almost seven years now, a little less than seven years. And, uh, I've done a lot of different kind of like, uh, tweaks and like, uh, self-experimentation type things in terms of kind of how I structure the high fat program within my lifestyle, uh, and to get to something where I'm really kind of pleased with what it, what it has done for me and what it's done for other people I've helped with it. What, what was like a, like a typical day of eating kind of, what was your carb based protocol prior to the switch? Uh, it was what I would call kind of a high carb whole food approach where my focus was a lot of times on, you know, healthy whole food carbs, like fruits, vegetables, maybe some whole grains and things like that. So it wasn't like I was eating a a junk food diet by any means, but it was, it was probably at least 60% carbohydrate and at times upwards to 70. Um, and then the rest would just be kind of, a an even split between fat and protein. And then, um, when I've kind of switched, switched over to the high fat side of things, what I ended up kind of settling on is if you look at my my macronutrient breakdown throughout the course of the year it's probably closer to about an average of 10 percent carbohydrate um anywhere from 60 to 70 percent fat and then the rest protein and you know that varies quite a bit depending on where i am in training like i kind of mentioned earlier if i'm recovering uh or taking downtime i drop those carbs really really low and try to almost avoid them altogether but then when I kind of get into that peak training phase where I might be working out upwards of 20 hours a week doing like, you know, volume training, aerobic based stuff, as well as some speed workouts some gym work and, you know, a lot of mobility type things like that, 
you know, that's when I'll let my carbs get up to their highest. And in those phases, sometimes they'll get up to 20%. And even, you know, a few days out of the year, I'll let it get up to even 30% when I have a really big training block in just to kind of stay metabolically flexible enough so that I can kind of punch that last gear if I need to. Um, but not so much that I really sacrifice so much of my fat adaptation that I can no longer kind of rely on that as a primary fuel source come race day. So kind of the general thought for me is I always want fat to be the primary macronutrient and to be the basis of my nutrition. And then after that, I just need to kind of decide how fat adapted do I want to be for this race? Uh, and that kind of dictates how many carbohydrates I introduce to the equation. So you kind of address your level of adaptation on a race by race basis almost. Yeah. And you know, I like to put more faith in kind of, I guess what I would call a field study than I do like necessarily checking a lot of, uh, things like ketone levels and, and that sort. I, I certainly do that just cause I get so many questions about like, are you in ketosis all the time? When do you go into ketosis? Do you come out of ketosis and that stuff? And I like to be able to share, you know, like accurate information with people. So I will check that stuff from time to time so I can get an idea of kind of what my body is actually doing. But for me, really the more valuable task is when I'm kind of getting into the thick of things in training is when I'm fat adapted enough, that means I can go for a long run, which can be like four, maybe even five hours uh, in length and just fuel on electrolytes and water. And if I can get through that run, which is generally relatively low intensity, it's not like I'm not doing like fast sessions within that long run. But if I can do that and feel really, really like like uh, consistent energy throughout the whole thing, then I know I'm fat adapted enough that uh, I can rely on fat as my primary fuel source. So then at that point, it's just about, you know, bringing back a little bit of carbohydrate here and there so I can uh, execute a faster training session if I need to. Um, and also be able to kind of remain what I'd like to call like metabolically flexible, uh, when I need to, uh, to kind of explain that too is, you know, I think, I think we're starting to kind of gather more info on this and get a better look at it. But when I first was kind of in the middle of like using a high fat approach, there was, there was some buzz around like kind of this idea that you have to either be super strict keto or really high carb. And there is like, there's no middle ground there. Um, but that's just not what I've seen with my own experience and some of the experience of people I've worked with is like when I find things are really humming along well, uh, I can get in ketosis very easily, uh, but I can also kind of pop out if I need to for a workout and, you know, my body doesn't really struggle to kind of get back into ketosis after that. So as I've done this longer and longer, I, I, I noticed like if I have a day where I bring back, uh, some carbohydrates, which I usually focus on things like sweet potatoes, melons, berries, maybe some raw honey. I'll take those in maybe mo probably mostly at dinner, um, but like the day before a big workout. And then that next day I'll do that workout and I'll feel like I have the high end energy enough to do the faster stuff. Uh, but then when I finish that, you know, if I go back to kind of a more ketogenic, uh, high fat, really, really low carb protocol and I'll be back in ketosis, like, uh, very shortly thereafter that workout. So, being able to kind of come in and out and be able to kind of walk that line between being in a clinical or ketogenic level, but also being able to kind of step out of it a little bit, I think is the kind of sweet spot for an endurance athlete. Yeah, I would have to imagine you're pretty much like the definition of incredibly insulin sensitive. I mean, anything you take in, <laughs> run as much as you are, your body's just going to take it up and consume it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, one thing I find really interesting too, is like when I was in the earlier stages of kind of playing around with things, you know, I was still trying to learn a lot. So I was testing a lot more often and, you know, I would bump myself out of ketosis fairly easily, just like I'm sure most people experience, uh, you know, I might have just like a hundred grams of carbohydrate or something like that. And I'd be bumped out of ketosis and it might take me a day or two to kind of get back into that. But you know, now, like I just did a little bit of a self experiment a few a week or two ago where I did a day where I had a fair, for me anyway, a fairly high dose of carbohydrates. I think I had, if, if I remember correctly, it was like somewhere around four cups of cantaloupe, two cups of berries, tablespoon of raw honey, and a large sweet potato during the course of the day. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I certainly bumped out of ketosis during that day. But then that next morning I did a workout and then when I checked my ketone levels after that workout, I was, I was very much in ketosis. So, uh, that probably wouldn't have happened to me like within the first couple months of the program. But you know, now that I've been doing it long enough, I think my body has more or less kind of really recognized fat as its primary fuel source. And when, when the carbs are no longer present, uh, or are getting low, I think my body kind of gravitates back towards that a little quicker or a little a little more easily than it maybe had in the earlier stages. Yeah, I completely agree, man. I think, um, I mean, obviously the body's incredibly smart. We don't even know what we don't know about how capable it truly is. But it's always wanting to go back to that homeostatic point. And if you've been, you know, low-carb keto, you know, roughly for seven years, like that's become your body's norm. And you have a lot more flexibility than some of that's, you know, just started keto for a week and, and they want to incorporate some additional carbs for like a specific event or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's where it always gets interesting too. And I think, I think one of the biggest mistakes too is you know, people read some of the success stories of their friends or people on a ketogenic diet and they're like, well, you know, I want that too. And so they kind of decide to dive into it. And, uh, it, it's, it can be difficult to be patient, I think sometimes and let everything kind of come into full effect. And, you know, for me, I noticed, I know, I certainly noticed some things right away, like I mentioned earlier with my sleep and like, uh, swelling and things like that and energy levels. Uh, you know, but you know, there's, there's things I've noticed as I continued on to that seem to kind of compound on themselves, which really makes me interested in the, in the approach as a whole. And, uh, you know, I'll be excited to kind of see what the framework would maybe look like for someone kind of doing what I'm doing, but starting at an early age. Cause even though I've been following a high fat program for nearly seven years, that still leaves me with 25 years where I was very much high carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it'd be interesting to me to see what happens if you have like, you know, someone who's following a high fat diet essentially from like, you know, from birth towards into their, you know, their twenties and thirties. And if, if that allows them like even that much more flexibility just because their body knows no other way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, the earlier you start, the the more apt your body is going to be to, to make that the norm and then just, that that is just is what's going to take and use going forward like for me i've been strict keto for four years now and you know this year is substantially different than the first six months like it just continues to get better and better the longer you're in i think mm-hmm. yeah 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 did you did you get into keto as just kind of like a, a way to kind of hack performance and stuff or was it something that uh you just found intriguing no, I, I came into it completely by accident, man. I was doing John Kiefer's carb backloading protocol, um, and I was basically eating a whole bunch of high glycemic index carbs at night and, you know, low-carb 
to no carb during the morning and noticed that I felt better before I introduced the carbs. So I basically switched to doing, you know, carb backloading without the carbs and found out that that was actually keto. Um, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's kind of dove into it by accident. But yeah, it's, I haven't looked back since. I mean, I felt, you know, substantially better. It's kind of different. I mean, what, what's, what's the general consensus in your sport, you know, endurance running? I mean, you know, are people... Is, is the majority pretty knowledgeable about keto or is it, are there still a lot of ignorance there? Cause in bodybuilding, I mean, it's people think they're keto with in the bodybuilding world, but to them keto and, and, you know, low carb is the same thing, but it's not necessarily the same thing. Cause they'll have their protein sky high still. Yeah. You know, it's, there's definitely a fair bit of ignorance. I would say, um, certainly more people are following, uh, a high carbohydrate. And I think that's almost more so just culturally. I think, you know, if, if it's certainly gotten better over the last five, 10 years, but if you walk into a grocery store and just kind of grab random stuff, you're probably going to fall much closer to a high carb program than you would a high fat program. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people just don't put a whole lot of thought and effort into what they're eating. (laughs) They just kind of gravitate to what they want or what they like or what they're told to do. So, um, I still think there's a lot of people kind of following, Uh, a very, very relaxed approach to their nutrition. And then that kind of skews them a little closer to high carb. Um, But, you know, there's definitely a lot more interest in it. There's definitely a lot more people, I think, taking a second look or um, thinking about it at least. And uh, with that, you're definitely going to have people who who, uh, find it very useful and kind of recognize those uh, potential um, benefits from it. I mean, kind of like yourself where they try it out and they see some results and then, you know, they go a little further down the rabbit hole and and notice that they get even better results. And, and for those people, you know, they almost essentially from either a psychological thing, psychological way or like a kind of a shift in their culture or their beliefs, they, you know, they start to kind of normalize the high fat approach and then it just becomes easy. It becomes routine or almost uh, intuitive as opposed to kind of this, I have to find a way to kind of, stick this square peg through a round hole type of thing when like you're going out to eat with friends or going to the grocery store and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's now that it's just simply even becoming an option for people to use and experiment with. I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, not too long ago, I didn't put any emphasis in nutrition. I mean, I just thought it was all about the training because you just assume trainings where the majority of your progress lies and then, you know, little bits allocated toward nutrition. But once you kind of change your way of thinking there and you realize how key proper nutrition and, and you know health and dieting really is especially as it as it relates to performance goals i mean then you really start to take an interest to what your options are and with keto being one of the more prominent options or growing as a prominent option now it's it's exciting to see people you know tap into another level of their potential using the diet yeah mm-hmm. yeah and i know it, it's it can always be a, a bit of a roadblock block for people i think when they when they first think about doing it i know you know one of the first things that crossed my mind when i uh was was considering trying it was like you know i i asked myself a question of how i was going to reduce the number of potatoes i eat in a day and i look back at that now and i, I find that very silly that that was ever even a, a thought that crossed my mind but you know people get you know they get a routine and they they start to kind of lean on what they're doing, I think. And it's, it's like, you know, I guess change in general can sometimes be a bit of a hurdle, but, um, you know, the more, the more people we have that kind of find success and share their stories, it it makes it a little more powerful and it just gives people more resources. I know like, uh, 
I'll see that happen a lot where people, they, they have, they're well-intended, but then they make a small mistake that can have um, a, a pretty big effect on how the program works. But then once they get that ironed out, they're, they're kind of smooth sailing. And, you know, social media and support groups and kind of the growing uh, interest in like a ketogenic or high fat type of approach, you, you definitely have a lot more resources out there now to kind of, you know, ask questions and, and remedy any potential mistakes. Absolutely. I think, you know, leaders in their sport, you know, just showcasing what's possible and people look up to that and they, they want to experiment and then they could tap into their own potential as well and see, you know, how it works for them as an individual. Um, so what, with regard to like your, you know, foray into keto and, and low carb, higher fat as it relates to your runs, what's like a typical, you know, like when you're running a hundred miles, what's your nutrition like? Like, do you bring you know, the goo packs that probably are pretty typical in your sport, you bring like macadamia nuts or what's like a typical day during an event look like? Yeah. So the events get a little interesting. Uh, the way I kind of program it is I'm trying to get myself fat adapted enough so I can reduce the amount of food I need to eat during an event. Um, so the way I usually describe it to people is before when I was high carb, I would take in upwards to maybe 400 plus calories per hour and I kind of needed that to keep my energy levels high enough to feel good. Um, so my goal with the high fat approach is to be able to reduce that, um, hopefully by at least half, um, but not sacrifice any of the energy levels. Uh, and what that does is it allows me to avoid the mass amount of digestion required during an event, which can create a lot of hurdles, especially as you know, the distance gets longer and your body starts to become less and less receptive of you kind of jamming all these engineered fuels, you know, into your gut. And, uh, as the temperatures can get higher, it gets even more difficult to do that. So my goal has always been not necessarily to eliminate having to eat, but to really lower it to a level that my body can kind of tolerate over the course of a very long, uh, time frame. So the way I kind of look at race day then is like where my fuel sources are going to come from. And there, you know, there's basically two, you have like a fat, your fat reserves and then, you know, your glycogen reserves. So the glycogen ones are the ones that are small in relation, like even the leanest athletes out there have enough body fat that to keep that tank, um, accessible throughout the entirety of the event. So I try not to eat too much fat during the race itself, because if I can rely on an onboard fat, then I'm bypassing digestion for that energy source. Um, so what I'll do then is I'll, I'll bring back very little amounts of carbohydrate throughout the course just to kind of keep that, that fuel tank that can be easily depleted, um, having some resources delivered to it. So the way that kind of looks now is depending on like the race intensity, probably anywhere between 20 to maybe 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour, uh, or like maybe a hundred to maybe at most probably 200 calories per hour is what I'm aiming for in a race. Um, so I very much kind of cut that in half. And, and what I've noticed is as I've gotten more fat adapted, like, you know, that's, that's plenty. Uh, I feel, I feel the same energy wise as I did when I was taking in 400 plus, but I don't have nearly the like stomach cramps and like bloated feeling that you get when you're just trying to stick, you know, all that food in while trying to perform. Yeah. I can only imagine running like a hundred miles and having to, you know, consume food. I, mean, I bet your digestion would just get all kinds of jacked up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it, it becomes a big issue when you get into the longer events. Uh, you know, I, that probably derails people's efforts as often as anything in the sport is, you know, you see it all the time. People get to around mile 70 and all of a sudden 
you know, the gels they were taking stop working and they start puking them up. And then rather than, you know, running, bringing in the race strong or finishing strong, they find themselves, you know, constantly pulling over, puking up gels and then relying so heavily on carbohydrate as a fuel. Once they've essentially depleted that energy source, they're kind of a shell of themselves and drop out or waddle in and, uh, you know, really kind of puts a damper on your potential if, if that's kind of occurring. So, you know, my, my message has always been within the ultra running community is like, if, if you're struggling with digestion and if you're struggling at the end of the race to kind of keep food down, then the answer isn't to try to find something else that you can kind of, kind of eat. It's, it's more of a question of how do you find a way to eat less so you don't get to that point. Um, and from my experience, the best way to do that is, you know, jack up your fat burning potential so that you don't have to rely as heavily upon carbohydrates come race day. I agree. Have you ever tried to do just like a like a fasted run and just go the entire you know events distance without any food? Yeah, you know, I'll I'll play around with that, uh, especially with uh, I'll do kind of like what I was saying before. I'll do a few races a year where they're more or less like B race level or level races where they're kind of like workouts more or less to kind of prepare for the goal race. And for those, I'll generally take in a lot less fuel just because I'm usually interested in kind of where my fat adapted levels are at um and i don't necessarily feel like i need to push as hard so i probably don't need as much of that kind of high intensity type fuel source so um trying to remember the last race i did on no fuel i did a couple 50ks early in the year where i think i took in just maybe a couple hundred calories throughout the entirety of the event but it's been a while since i've done a race and took in zero calories um, I usually reserve the completely fasted, like no fuel ones for, um, long runs where my intensity is going to be quite a bit lower than even some of those B level races. Uh, but I have gotten away with quite, quite few when I can kind of keep, when I can keep the output at what I call like about 80% full capacity, which is usually what I'm aiming for. If I jump into a race, that's not a goal race. You know, I can very much get away with you know, less than 20 grams or hundred calories an hour and feel, feel just fine at that intensity. Yeah. I'd have to assume, you know, like if you're just kind of humming along at a good steady pace, then you can just tap into that, you know, fat reserve and just not even need to, you know, intake any food during the event, even if you're, you know, 50 miles or upwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting. Cause, uh, I, I do remember I, I, I did, I did a hundred kilometer race years ago when I first started the the diet and I kind of wanted a test level. So I didn't feel with anything for the first 50 kilometers. And, uh, that came back and bit me a little bit cause I, I wasn't fat adapted enough yet. I had just kind of started the program, but, um, you know, I think when, you know, that's when, when I'm coaching people to the process and they're early in the stages like that and they want to try something or test something like that, I always tell them, you know, if you want to try it, go for it, but definitely bring a plan B just in case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, thankfully there's aid stations at these things. So I wasn't, I was probably fat adapted enough that once I got to an aid station and took in some fuel, I was fine going forward. But, um, you know, now, now that I've been doing it long enough, I could probably pull that off a lot easier. Um, it might be a little more difficult to kind of really power up a hill at a hundred percent at the end of the race. Uh, but there, there are folks out there who are doing it on, on less fuel than I am and, and seemingly doing well too. So I think there is some individual variances there. Definitely. What's your preference towards like running on trails versus on pavement? 
Um, historically, I always loved pavement better. I've been more, spent more time doing it. So I think just like the level of comfort and the level of competency was higher. Uh, but you know, I, I moved out to Phoenix, Arizona in, in January and now I've got mountain trails like right out my backyard. So, uh, now that I kind of have access to that and I've seen like quite a bit of kind of growth on that type of terrain, um, you know, racing those and kind of targeting races like that is becoming a little more appealing. So I think it's, uh, it's probably a little closer to a 50, 50 split at this point. And, um, I think ideally that's where I want it to be. It's like, I've been doing this long enough now where a lot of the races and a lot of the distances I've done already. So there's a little less nuance with it. So when I'm kind of trying to get excited about a buildup for a race, it's kind of nice to be able to kind of switch from a couple different like types of programs. So I think ideally I do like half a year where I kind of focus on trails with a little more climbing and descending. And then the other half of the year focus on things that are really kind of flat and just seeing how fast you can go. Um, but I guess the general thing for me is, uh, I really like running. Uh, so if the trail gets so difficult that the majority of the race is going to require like a power hike, then I'm probably going to gravitate away from it. I, I really do. Even if I'm on a trail prefer to be kind of doing that running mechanic as opposed to the hiking mechanic. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll kind of draw the line there, at least, at least for now. What, um, I'm gonna get down into the specifics here. I'm just curious what kind of like gear as far as you know footwear do you use and recommend yeah you know i've been with a company called ultra footwear for quite a while now i think i started running for them in 2013 and uh they make this shoe that's it it seems like it should be very intuitive but like it's uh, they're probably the only running brand right now that really does it right they make a a foot-shaped toe box so rather than kind of tapering in the sides of the shoe to a point they map the like where your foot flares out and where your foot flares in so it's almost like having a shoe there but it feels like there's no shoe there um and then they build all kinds of shoes for different environments too so like they have ones that are more specific for like a road for a track and for a trail and then technical trail versus kind of smooth trail um so i like that and you know their other feature kind of is they build it on a flat platform so regardless of how much cushion they put on the shoe you're always standing on what they call a zero drop platform and um that kind of just puts your body back in its more natural state or your more natural like area or center of balance which is um you know i think very ideal for keeping your biomechanics in a proper proper place so you're not getting like weird injuries or sending impact forces into the wrong areas of your body I think that's key, man. Like the lifting shoes I use are, are zero drop shoes, and and they're honestly like the most comfortable pieces of footwear I've ever had on had on. I mean, they just they feel more natural. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting when you look at like why shoes kind of ended up the way they did. And uh, I, I I was looking into that not too long ago, and apparently like the point at the end of a shoe dates back to like a long time ago when they had like uh, stirrups on on horses. It was like you didn't want to you wanted a shoe that or a boot that you could slide right out of that stirrup easily in case you got kicked off. You didn't want your leg to get drug along. And then as shoes became more and more uh, prominent within like uh, lower and middle class, you know, they wanted to have the same stuff that the the wealthy people had. So they started making the shoes look like that for just any purpose. And uh, that's kind of how they got that framework of that pointed toe. Um, and then, yeah, the, the heel lift is the other goofy one where um, I think the idea behind that originally was if you put more put 
cushion on your heel, you can take a longer stride and that longer stride should equate to, you know, covering more distance over a given time. When in reality, that's not really the way the body works from a mechanical standpoint. Like just because your stride length is longer doesn't necessarily mean you're going faster, but what it can do is it can encourage you to kind of overreach your natural gait and bring your foot out in front of what should be a bent knee. And that's just going to kind of drive those impact forces into your knees and into your hips. Whereas you really want to come down underneath a bent knee so that you're using that leg as like a three foot spring essentially. Um, and kind of having that flat bed is really nice for being able to, uh, help get your foot coming down in that right position so that you're, you're kind of absorbing those impact forces the way your body's meant to do that. And I can imagine with lifting too, like just from a, from a balance standpoint, uh, in being able to kind of really maximize your power, you're going to want to be in the most stable position possible and kind of being in that natural position is, is probably ideal. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it's best to like when you're running land on your toe as opposed to your heel ideally, right? Um, kind of, it's, it's really less about where your foot actually strikes on the ground. Um, you can heel strike and come down under bent knee, uh, in which case you're probably fine. Uh, but more often than not, you know, people with the right cadence and the right gait are probably going to be more along the lines of a midfoot strike. And, you know, like myself, I'm even more so of a four foot striker. So further up there, it just tends to be a little easier to come down on a bent knee when you're in that midfoot, forefoot area and a little more difficult to do it on the heel. So uh, if it's if it is done with the heel, it's usually kind of a unique situation. Gotcha. As far as like different sporting events goes, I would have to assume that like running is kind of probably the worst thing for your joints. I mean, have you had any kind of injuries or anything? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting like, that that's usually like kind of a common thing i guess where uh people will see how much i run and they'll be like well your knees are going to be shot when you're you know when you're my age and stuff like that uh but really i think it comes down to kind of what we were just talking about like if your mechanics are or work well um you know you're not going to necessarily destroy your joints and things like that uh in fact i can't remember the name of the study but harvard did a big research study on that and actually looked at like um, knee issues and things like that. And, and running actually was shown to kind of lower some of that stuff if done right. Um, but there's always going to be scenarios where people aren't really running with good form and things like that, which can be easy to do because, you know, running is kind of a weird sport in that when people started, a lot of times the, the messaging of the programming is like, all right, you know how to run, just go out and run X amount of miles and then come back or X amount of time and come back. Whereas you see some of these other sports like soccer, football, basketball, baseball, it's like everything starts with technique and then they start playing the game. So like uh, running kind of, I guess, put the cart before the horse to some degree. And sometimes people kind of get into it without the proper footwear, without the proper mechanics. And then and I think that's where some of the injuries kind of kind of sneak up on people. Is there anything that you do, uh, you know, in addition to the proper technique to kind of be more preventative with the injuries? Like you know, any kind of supplementation or, um, you know, massage therapy, anything like that? Yeah, I'll get massages and stuff and do some like mobility routine stuff just to kind of, especially when I'm doing more flat running, because that tends to be a little more of a, uh, like a monotonous like movement. Whereas when I'm running on the trails, I'm kind of like, you're like, you're oscillating or like kind of jostling back and forth enough where you're putting your, your legs through a variety of different movements. 
Um, so your body kind of adapts to that and then gets really good with, with a variety of different stimulus as opposed to one. Um, I try to stay on top of that just to kind of keep ankle mobility and things like that and in a good position and then strength work and things like that too, I think is, is beneficial within the context of an endurance uh, sport. You know, sometimes people think like, well, I don't want to go to the weight room because if I get really big and muscular, I won't be as fast. And really it's like, if you're running and focusing on that as you're training and then you're going to the weight room and doing some of those core lifts, like squats and deadlifts and um, that sort of thing, like you're probably just going to like keep yourself well balanced and strong as opposed to like putting on a bunch of bulk. It's, it's kind of hard to put on a lot of bulk when you run a lot. So, um, you know, I think I focus on some of that stuff too, just to kind of, uh, avoid getting too dominant in the areas that are primary movers for running and, uh, keeping things like the, the posterior chain, like glutes, hamstrings and like that strong, uh, especially when I'm doing more flat, flat work or flat, uh, terrain type of running. Yeah, I agree. I think having, you know, a balance, obviously having your primary focus of running, but I mean, I think it's good to, you know, stimulate the muscles all different kind of ways, all different kind of movements and, and different training techniques. Um, for me, like as a bodybuilder, I love to run, but I mean, it wouldn't really make sense for me to run hundred miles because it, it would be very difficult to try and build any mass doing that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can, uh, I can vouch that it's very difficult to put on mass when you're running a hundred miles. <laughs> why do you like, in your opinion, why do you think that is, is it like a point at what, I mean, this is going to be individual based for sure, but at what distance does it, your body mechanics and just your nutrition take over to the point where it's, it's like, what's the tipping point for adding size versus endurance, I guess? Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think, uh, for me personally, if I were trying to just get strong and certainly if I was trying to add a bunch of muscle, I wouldn't probably run, you know, much past like 15, 20 miles a week. I think like you're still going to get some of those aerobic kind of base building type, uh, setup with that. Um, and you know, anything over that becomes kind of specific to running and starts skewing away from, from the, the primary goal of putting on muscle. Whereas you're going to, you're going to do that a lot, a lot easier, probably just lifting heavy weights. Um, but yeah, I don't know where the crossover point is. I guess it probably does depend quite a bit on the person. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, I think probably keeping it relatively low or even looking for those aerobic type of activities or endurance based activities within the context of a kind of a strength program, as opposed to just doing like, you know, like going out for a jog. Do you ever do like sprints or anything like that? Or do you pretty much just all do like, um, more towards endurance? I mean, do you ever train with sprints or just do that as a, I mean, do you enjoy them at all? Yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll do those. And I, th I think it's good to put your body through that full range of motion and put it through that in kind of a um, more or less 100% intensity type of a setup. So I'll do those things. Usually they're earlier in the training. And then if I'm doing them near the end of a training block, it's they're, they're not that many of them. And it's more or less just kind of like a stride type of a setup. Uh, but yeah, you know, the way I look at it is like, it, like I kind of talked about in the beginning where the specificity is key, but, um, I think kind of addressing all the systems of training is beneficial throughout the entirety of the program. So shorter sprints, like I'll do a workout where I'll do, I'll break every, every minute apart into two segments where it's like a 20 second segment and a 40 second segment. 
And the 20 second segment is kind of like a build up to all out and I'd hold that for like seven or eight seconds and then kind of deaccelerate and then do 40 seconds just easy jogging and then repeat that. You know, I'll do that sometimes 20, 30 times in some workouts early on in my training. Gotcha. Gotcha. What, what is your, um, I'm just totally <laughs> rattling these questions off at you, man. I'm, I'm just kind of <laughs> curiosity here. What, what's like your typical warm up routine or stretching routine prior to going for a run just to kind of minimize any chance of injury? Uh, you know, it's a lot of it, I think is just about like not starting out too fast. So a lot of days I'll just start the run. I won't do a whole lot before it, but I'll be very cognizant of the first 10 to 15 minutes of just kind of, you know, letting the body loosen up and kind of find a groove before I try to do anything, um, you know, even at a, at a moderate effort. Um, but other days, you know, especially when I kind of get into the thick of it and I know I'm putting my body through quite a bit. I'll do some like dynamic movements, like uh, like kind of lunges and things like that, um, wall sits and stuff before a run, especially if it's a, like a workout. Try to stay away from the static stretching like before a workout. Um, I'll sometimes do some of that like at the end of the day, like at the end of a gym session or something like that, uh, when I'm not gonna go back out and work out after that. But um, yeah, usually if I'm doing anything before, it's more of a dynamic type of a movement in order to kind of just fire up the central nervous system and get those those kind of uh big mover muscles kind of activated before starting starting out on the run it's kind of funny like static stretching was always you know preached like in track and field in high school and now i think the more research that comes out you know people kind of recommending away from that yeah yeah i think you you i mean with running i think uh and probably any any explosive activity as well I think you want to have like those muscles to be kind of like, like if you think of like a rubber band, if you take a rubber band and you stretch out a bunch, it loses its kind of, it loses its pop. Mm -hmm. um, so you, I think you want to have mobility within kind of a taut system. So you want to be able to be able to move, put your body through a range of motion, but you don't necessarily want to just be like super loose to the point where like you can over, overextend a stride and potentially like injure a muscle by, by overreaching its capacity. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. What, um, all right, so I got, I got a question here for you. As far as all the runs you've done, what's been like the, the mental aspect of the, the endurance running? Cause like with, with bodybuilding, I mean, I always tell people it's a mental sport. I'm sure the same is true when you're running a hundred miles, you have to kind of prep yourself mentally and psychologically and emotionally more so than even physically. What does that yeah. look like for you? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I think as the distance gets longer, it becomes even less important about how specific your training is and more about how ready you are mentally. And you see like different programs done with great results at the end of a race. Uh, and I think the people who are consistently doing well are the ones who can kind of put themselves into a good mental place and, and execute a plan. Um, and it's really a lot of things like in general, what it comes down to is uh, when you're lining up for like a hundred mile race, the last thing you want to do is be thinking about finishing when you start, because that's just going to kind of overwhelm you and, and, and set you back. So starting to kind of like, uh, pick mini goals along the way, rather than thinking, all right, I'm three miles in, I got 97 miles to go. You think like I'm three miles in the next aid station is at seven miles. I'm going to do what I need to do to get to that aid station, take care of myself. Once I get there, then I'll start working on the next goal and you just kind of start chipping away at these mini goals along the way. Um, and then eventually, you know, you get to the point where the last mini goal is the finish line and then you can usually wrap your head around that. It is crazy, man. Like the, 
the uh, similarities between all these things from a mental aspect are, are there because you got you got to think of it like in a long-term long game approach as opposed to just being patient and only focusing on the a and the z because when you do that i mean you're pretty much just destined to fail yeah well i can imagine in bodybuilding too like when you have those different phases of training where you're you're building and then you have to cut but you still have to keep workouts in place it can be this a mental challenge just to kind of execute the right plan that you know is going to work yeah living on a day-to-day i mean like towards the end of a contest prep like i'm literally i, I break the day into 30 minute intervals and i'm just trying to get to the next 30 minutes and it's probably the same thing with you you know got to get to the next mile um, mm-hmm. and and just you know chipping away at it as you go yeah absolutely all right one one final question for you here that you can leave us with some some wisdom you had mentioned that you know a lot of people with running they just kind of throw you out there and, and take to go run what would be a good game plan or you know guidance strategy for someone that's wanting to to get into running um and this is a selfish question because I, I just bought a pair of running shoes and i'm trying to incorporate more not nothing crazy long but i, I want to kind of ease into it and just make that one of my forms of cardio um but what would you recommend kind of as a strategy for the person that's that's wanting to dive into this from the beginning yeah, I think I think if you have access to it, like a, it, it's it's wise to you know check with um you know like a physical therapist or a sports uh, sports therapist that you know can kind of get you a, get you a gait analysis and like you know hopefully someone who's knows enough about it that they can do what they kind of call like a three hundred and sixty degree um, analysis where they can kind of tell you like. Are you like kind of in the right position? Are your mechanics good? Is there any like red flags that could potentially cause an injury down the road? Um, and then you can kind of have an idea of like, am I running with good, good form and good posture and stuff like that, uh, rather than kind of setting in place like a, a mechanics that uh, are less than ideal. Because as your body starts to learn a mechanic, it's going to gravitate towards it. So if you learn a poor mechanic, it's going to be a lot harder to kind of break it. So if you're kind of getting into it, I think that's probably a good investment. Um, or if it, you know, not everyone has access to that stuff too. There's, there's resources online too. Like, uh, um, I know on ultrarunning.com at ultra with an A, they do a huge educational piece on their website where they, they, they call it their run better clinic. And it kind of shows you like these four points of, uh, kind of what to focus on rather than kind of saying like this is what a good runner does they kind of show this is what a good runner does um and this is how they do it and then it kind of walks you through a few different steps of what to focus on to kind of get your body in that position and i think if you practice those early on and you kind of develop those the muscle memory around those good mechanics then um you can probably enjoy it a lot more especially as you kind of get into it very cool i'll I'll check those out for sure where where do you find somebody to to monitor your gaze like is it like a like a, a website for that or is it just basically you gotta know somebody uh yeah i think most like uh like physical sports physical therapist places would have someone on staff that is like knowledgeable of that i know there's also like some good like online ones too there's a guy named joe yuhan um yuhan is u-h-a-n and he does a lot of the virtual gait analysis stuff for ultra marathon runners um, and he's very like uh, meticulous. So he'll like do the 360 video thing and he'll give you all the information to get you going. And then he'll do spot checks and stuff along the way so he can see if you're making improvements. And he's really good. You know, it's, it's, 
it's hard because sometimes, you know, you find yourself in a position where someone's telling you what to do uh, or what you're doing wrong, but not necessarily how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, guys like Joe, they're very much trying to kind of teach you what to do as opposed to what you're doing wrong necessarily. I like it. Yeah, this is this is fascinating, man. I'm gonna I'm motivated to go uh, look up this info and strap on my shoes and go for a run now. <laughs> awesome. Where can uh, where can people go find out more about you, man? Uh, there are a couple spots. Um, I've got a website, zachbitter.com, just Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. and then um, Instagram. I'm gonna start posting a little more about some of the kind of recipes and food I eat on a daily basis, as well as some of the training stuff, and that's. Just Zach or at Zach Bitter on Instagram too. I'm going to uh, uh, link out to all those two to make it easy for people to find you. So, what, when when is the next run you said? Uh, it's on June 23rd, so coming up kind of soon here. June 23rd, you feel ready for it? Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. We just had a training camp this last weekend out on the course where we ran the last 70 miles in in three days. So it was really good to kind of see that part of the course and kind of. Uh, I guess confirm in my mind like kind of where my pacing strategies uh, should be kind of dedicated. Obviously, I mean you're you're wanting to, to be the best you can be and you know compete at a competitive level and and win. I mean we we play to win, but from in your eyes in your mind are you are you running and competing for your own personal uh, you know prove something to yourself? Are you trying to rank or like what's your what's your end goal basically? Yeah, you know, with with 100 mile races, it's rare that I go in with just kind of one goal because what you can sometimes find is if for whatever reason that goal gets taken off the table early on or anywhere, it gets really hard to kind of want to keep going. Mm-hmm. So if it's an important race, I usually try to say like, well, here's here's a this is kind of my a, a point where, you know, I'd be happy with and then I set like two or three goals kind of at and beyond that. So for Western States is uh, the most competitive hundred miler in North America, and you know arguably at some years the most in the world. There's there's another race called UTMB, which is um, kind of goes back and forth between that and Western States as to whether which one's more competitive. But I mean there'll be no shortage of talent, and with hundred miles, you never know. You know. Guys have great days, guys have bad days, and there might not be a whole lot of variance in how those play out. So you know for me, I would love to try to focus on getting in the top 10 because that gets you an automatic spot back into the event the following year and you know i think there is a path in which i could win if i have a the right the right day and you know the right environment kind of comes to play i i personally think a really hot day probably favors me more than a cooler day or something like that so um i'll definitely kind of take what my body gives me and then adjust on course and you know hopefully i'll be in contention for uh, a good place by the end this is cool, man. I'm excited. June 23rd. I'm going to put this on my calendar so I can check back in and see see how you did. All right. Awesome. Well, Jack, Zach, it's been a pleasure, man. I've learned a ton. Um, I consider myself a little bit more enlightened into the ultra-endurance world, far more so than I was anyways. Um, so, I, yeah, I definitely keep in touch, man. I'm excited to see how, how this goes for you and, and what you continue to do going forward. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on. It was it was a blast to kind of see your show and uh, – uh, get a glimpse into a, a different a different type of uh, athlete. <laughs> Absolutely, that's what that's what this was all about, man. Just kind of seeing how keto applies to everything and and learning as you go. Perfect. All right, Zach. Well, until next time, man. Take care.